This has come to the table. Bible studies from the New Testament Christian Church of Cheyenne. These studies are presented every Tuesday night at 7 p.m. at our church at 3800 East Pershing Boulevard in Cheyenne, Wyoming. If you'd like to contribute to these studies, you can make a donation at www.myntcc.org backslash Cheyenne WY dash giving. 1 Peter chapter 2. We finished up chapter 1 last week. It was a good teaching. We talked about purifying our souls and obeying the truth of the Spirit. We talked about unfeigned love, and we see the way that a lot of these scriptures are starting to interconnect with uh, some of the messages that have been preached recently. That was not by design. It just works out that way a lot of times. So we spoke about unfeigned love. Well, that's one of the things that Paul the Apostle spoke of being uh, one of the end products of the Word of God being active in our own lives. So beginning in the next chapter, chapter 2 and verse 1, he goes on to say, Wherefore, laying aside all malice and all guile and all hypocrisies and envies and all evil speakings, as newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word that ye may grow thereby, if so be ye have tasted that the Lord is gracious. Now he opens up this, this is one whole statement right here. I know it's in three verses, but that's the whole sentence. He opens up with this list of things that are no longer supposed to be motives in our own hearts. He talks about malice, guile, hypocrisies, envies, and evil speakings. Let's break these down for a little bit. Because we as transformed creatures, as new creatures, alive in God, by the blood of Jesus Christ, these are things that need to have departed from out of our heart. And if they have not, they need to depart from out of our heart as being any kind of a motivating force in the things that we do. He says malice. What's malice? Well, that's the same, the same root of that word is the same root of the word malicious. You know what malicious is? Acting with malicious intent, acting with the intent to harm others or to harm things, or to harm operations, or something like that, with malicious intent. Malice speaks of injurious and evil intention towards someone else, or to, so towards something that they are doing. That's what malice refers to. That's got to be killed, absolutely dead in us. And then he also speaks of guile, right on the, right on the heels of that. He says, laying aside all malice and all guile. Now, guile is just plain dishonesty. That's doing things with guile in your heart, with a, a deceptive intent in your heart, putting on one facade that is visible to others. Uh, and usually it's a facade of virtue or of uh, Christian character or that sort of thing. When inside is corruption, guile, deception, maliciousness, all of this. And hypocrisies goes hand in hand with guile. Because you have guile in your heart, hypocrisy is soon to follow. And we know what hypocrisy is. You ought to know what hypocrisy is. That's putting on a pretense. A hypocrite is someone that presents one standard, but lives a different one. They present a standard of one thing, but in fact, behind the scenes, they are something else. And so hypocrisy is something that's condemnable also. Envy's right on the heel of that. A lot of times, envy is a motive behind a lot of these things. People exercise malice towards one another because they're envious of someone else. They, someone other is something or has something or does something that another person envies and is jealous of 
And then that brings up all of those same corrupt motivations and all evil speakings. Evil speakings come out just as much as malice and guile. Evil speakings is something that comes out being motivated by these other things that Peter is condemning. Evil speakings. Well, I'm feeling malicious towards you, and so I'm going to speak evil of you. I'm, I've got guile in my heart towards you, and so I'm going to speak evil of you. Try to destroy your reputation or do harm to what you're doing. Hypocrisies. I'm not what I am on the outside. Deep down on the inside, I'm something much, much worse. And so I'm going to speak evil against you or against what you're doing. You can look at all of these and you can see how they're related to one another. Peter says, laying aside all of these things. Laying aside all of these things. These shouldn't have any place in our heart any longer. And if they do, we've got a very serious problem in our one-on-one -on -one relationship with God. There's something grossly lacking in our experience with God if malice is at work in our heart, if guile is at work in our heart, if hypocrisies and envies are at work in our heart. And you say, well, this is pretty entry-level stuff. Surely nobody in a church would have these things operating in their hearts. You'd be amazed. Some of the most jealous people you'll ever meet are people that are in churches because, well, I mean, you fill in the blank. They don't get to do what they want to do or something happens or there's just not an opportunity or someone else is doing it and there's jealousy that arises there. And then all these other things can end up coming along with it. Peter says laying all these things aside, laying aside as though there are things that no longer have a need, things that no longer have a use in our life. As newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word that you may grow thereby. That's what he's getting at. He mentions these other things in passing that we may push them aside that we can focus on the things that we need. He says, desire as newborn babes, desire the sincere milk of the word that ye may grow thereby. And that brings us right back to the, to the very same need of constant reading in the word of God. Constant reading. Is it what saves us? No, but it's what, it's what helps us to grow as individual believers, whether men or women. It helps us to grow. It helps us to mature in the Word. Not, it doesn't just fill our heads with knowledge because some people are great students, but they're very bad when it comes to actually practicing the thing. They're good students, but bad practitioners. And then other people are the other way around. You know, they're good practitioners, but they're bad students. And it's just it takes a little bit more work to actually learn that. And so if we desire the sincere milk of the Word, then we can focus on that and we can grow thereby. If so be, he says in verse 3, ye have tasted that the Lord is gracious. Well, why does he put that qualifier in there? If so be, you have tasted that the Lord is gracious. Surely we've all tasted that the Lord is gracious. Or we wouldn't have ever believed on him. We wouldn't have accepted his offer of forgiveness of all of our sins, our crimes against him if we hadn't understood that he was gracious, but maybe that was our first experience. We have tasted and seen that the Lord is gracious. And so having done that, having experienced that, he says to desire the sincere milk of the word that we may grow thereby. Let's move on into the next paragraph. Verse four, he says, to whom coming, speaking of to, to God, to Christ, to whom coming as unto a living stone, disallowed indeed of men, but chosen of God and precious, ye also as lively stones are built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood 
to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. Wherefore also it is contained in the scripture, Behold, I lay in Sion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he that believeth on him shall not be confounded. All right, now what's he getting at here? Now we were talking about some of this on Sunday morning, weren't we? A little bit of this came out in the message on Sunday morning when we were talking about the stone that the builders rejected. The same has become the head of the corner. And that was a, that was a, a prophecy way back in the Old Testament that was speaking of Christ. God knew even back in those days that when he sent his son, Messiah, into Israel, that his own people, Israel, were not going to receive him. They were going to reject him, and he was going to fulfill that role of the stone that was rejected. And then in being rejected as being unfit for them, he was going to end up uh, fulfilling a much more prominent role in the greater building of their society and their kingdom, the head of the corner. And so he mentions it again here. To whom coming as unto a living stone, that's Jesus Christ, disallowed indeed of men, that's that same prophecy that he's referring to, but chosen of God and precious. Now, people reject Jesus all the time. He didn't just get rejected one time 2,000 years ago when the leaders of the Jews rejected him and then moved the people to reject him and then off to Golgotha he went and was crucified. He's rejected by people all of the time, all, all over the world, as many as in as many places as the gospel is preached. There are those that believe and accept, and there are those that just say, no, not for me. But then he ends up fulfilling a different role in their life. There's no getting away from Christ. There's no ultimate getting away from him. Because he's either going to be the head of the corner of our lives. Or he's going to be that stone that falls onto us. That was the Sunday morning's text. He's going to be that stone that falls onto us and grinds us into powder. That's a, uh, it's a foretelling of the judgment that is to come. But one way or another... Christ is going to be something to everyone. He's either going to be the stone that was rejected and then he's going to come around and judge and destroy in, that, in, in, those, in those days in the day of the Lord or he's going to be the head of the corner in our life. He's going to be the chief foundation stone. He's going to be the most important part of the building of our life. He says, to whom coming as unto a living stone, disallowed indeed of men, but chosen of God and precious, ye also as lively stones are built up a spiritual house. Now, what does he mean by that? Now, we've talked about this theme before. It's been preached on. as We've used metaphors out of the Old Testament talking about the construction of the ancient temple of the Jews, the, the first temple that Solomon had built, and the Holy of Holies, and all of the different things that were in it that pertained to the worship of God. And it was a very, very holy place, to be sure. But the relationship that we have with God as believers, qualitatively, is different. We ourselves are become the temple of the living God, which is a good thing because leaks and old building problems and things like that that make it challenging to maintain a building. It's good to know that it's not the building that's the most important thing. However, you know, it being important, it is important, but it's not the most important thing. Every single believer in the, in the, the body of Christ, every single believer in the church, we are lively stones that build up the actual temple of God. It's made up of you and me, not this place. This place could catch fire and burn to the ground, and it would be a tragic loss. Glad for insurance, but it's you and I that make up the temple of the living God. And that's very, very literal. You 
are a living stone in the temple of God. So am I. Likewise, everyone that, that assembles here in spirit and in truth and is a genuine born-again believer. We are all these stones that make up the temple. Now, now that ought to speak to us at a, at a real deep level. You look at these cinder blocks here that make up this wall to our left. That's us in the temple of the living God. Knit together, mortared together, bound together by the same spirit, all right, that governs all of this. The same spirit that is the spirit of God, that is the spirit of Christ, that is the Holy Spirit that would indwell every single one of us, knitting us all together, making us into the same wall. What in the world? Do you see any of these stones having a gripe with another one? That's crazy, isn't it? That wouldn't make any sense at all. You got one stone that doesn't get away or that doesn't get along with another stone. Why wouldn't they get along? They're stones in the same wall. They're bearing up the same load. They're making up the same building. It's supposed to be the same way with us. When there are interpersonal problems between believers in a church, it's literally like two stones in the wall of the temple having some kind of a problem with one another. It's just as stupid, however much more probable, because sometimes we just get in the way of things, don't we? We don't have the right attitude. And so... Well, what does that mean? What should we do about that? Well, it's on us to change our own attitudes. It's on us to love one another. As he was just talking about in the previous chapter, just to go back to that again, he says, seeing you've purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit unto unfeigned love of the brethren. Now, some people don't have unfeigned love of the brethren. They have feigned love. That's faked love. That's, that's the putting on of a pretense, which Peter just told us to lay aside all these things. Put aside hypocrisies, lay aside malice, lay aside guile, lay aside envies, lay aside evil speakings, and all of these things that come from out of a corrupt heart. Our hearts have been purified by him. And so that's what's supposed to be setting us up to be living stones in the temple of the living God, loving one another sincerely not just as family, and family's not always the best metaphor to use because some family are terrible to one another, aren't they? Brothers and sisters that hate one another, it's as common as mud. It really is. That really ought to be left to the sinner side of things. You know, if there's Christians in a family and sinners in the same family, let the sinners be the ones doing the hating. Let's keep our own hearts pure. And I've been through that battle, and some of you have been through that battle as well. It's good to just keep your heart filled with love even towards them, even if that means you have to love them from a distance. Because that's a real thing, isn't it? Like, you are too close to me geographically. Uh, let me put another few hundred miles between you and I and get some safe distance here. Some people some people are like that, and they, they almost have to be like that. But we, as believers in the body of Christ, we ought to love one another. We ought to absolutely love one another. And in fact... He even speaks of it here, again, in that, last in that last paragraph in chapter 1. I know we're jumping back a few verses, but just to reinforce it, he speaks of unfeigned love of the brethren. See that ye love one another with a pure heart fervently. I can't overemphasize the importance of this because whole churches get split apart when love between brethren and sisters fail. When that love crashes and falls to the floor and, and, and people aren't valuing it anymore and they're not expressing or they're not because it's not always a matter of expression some people that's the only that's the only thing they do with regard to love is they express it but they never actually demonstrate it those are often two different things it doesn't take much effort it doesn't take much um, energy to say i love you 
but to actually show that you do, well, that takes a bit more. That takes a little bit more sacrifice of time and effort and things like that. Priorities. He speaks of this. He tells of us or directs us to love one another with a pure heart fervently. Fervently. Meditate on that. What does that mean? You can't love someone if you've got malice in your heart towards them. You can't. Malice and love are, are two complete polar opposites. And they, they don't ride in the same car well at all. One of them is going to kick the other one out or is going to give up and leave itself. You cannot love someone and have malicious intent towards them, have malice towards them. You can't love someone and at the same time have a heart that's filled with guile towards them. It, it does not work that way. It never does. Likewise, hypocrisies and envies. Who envies someone that they really love? 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and have not charity, and that word means love, I am become a sounding brass or as tinkling cymbal. Another translation uses the phrase uh, blaring brass and crashing cymbal. I actually think that's a better way of expressing it, but we'll stick with the King James here, especially as much as I speak in, in favor of King James. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains and have not charity, I am nothing. I'm nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned and have not charity, it profiteth me nothing. Charity, here it is. Charity suffereth long and is kind. Charity envieth not. Do you see how it's, it's expressed here by Peter? It's expressed here by Paul. The same message. Charity envieth not. If we have fervent love one towards another, sisters with sisters, brothers with brothers, brothers towards sisters, sisters towards brothers, in the right, pure, spiritual way, amen. We're not talking about free love, some hippie movement from the 60s and people doing immoral acts. We're talking about love one towards another. If we have that, there's no room in the heart anymore for envies because love does not envy. Love does not get bitter. Love is not unkind. He says, it suffers long and is kind. Charity envieth not. Charity vaunteth not itself, is not puffed up. What does puffed up mean? Puffed up with pride. It doesn't get its ego so grossly inflated that it can't fit through the door without greasing the sides of its heads. Love is the opposite of all of these things. It is the, it is the spectral opposite of all of them. It's not even on the same spectrum at all. It's, it, it's a completely different state of being. Love is utterly, utterly selfless. Did you know that? Now, there's four different kinds of love. Let me rephrase that. There are four different words that the Greeks had in their language for love. And just to, to go through them very quickly, there was one called storge, there's one called agape, or agape, uh, depending on how you pronounce it. There's one called eros, and there's one called philia. Those are the four different words that the Greeks used for love. And each of those referred to a different kind of love. Okay, storge referred to like a friendship kind of love. There's a guy, he's my friend, I'm his friend, we love each other. Not in a gay way, thank you, because that's a distortion of eros. Eros is erotic love. It speaks of sexual love. And in its purest state, which is to say its only acceptable state, is between a man and a woman lawfully married. Okay? 
That's eros, that's sexual love. It's made by God. There's nothing wrong with it as long as it's in its right place the way that God intended it to be. Then you've got this thing called philia. That's like family love. And you find that between parents and their children, children and their parents, and siblings between one another. And then the last of those four, agape. That refers to the absolute, pure, selfless, disinterested love that exists before, between God and man. God's love for us, agape, absolutely selfless. It was that kind of love that drove him to send his son to die to redeem us from our sins so we didn't have to go out into a Christless eternity and burn forever in judgment. That agape was what drove that. Agape is what drives the long-suffering of God. And it speaks of all of these different things. Now, why are we bringing up all these different kinds of love? It seems like we're stepping off the beaten path here with 1 Peter. Well, if we really love one another with an agape kind of love, there's no room for any of these things that he's told us to lay aside. There's no room for envies. There's no room for malice. There's no room for guile. There's no room for hypocrisies or for evil speakings. None of us here would speak evil of the other, even if there was something evil to speak about. Because the love of God is burning in our hearts one towards another. So, well, what if they've got something horrible about them that needs to be evil spoken about? Well, that's why we have prayer, amen? You've got prayer. You've got a gripe with someone, you can take it to the Lord. Why are we talking about all this? Well, because he speaks of us being as lively stones, built up a spiritual house. That's the temple of the living God. That's what we all uh, make up parts of. And then he goes on to mention in verse 5, he says, we're built up a spiritual house and holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. Now let's look at this. This is the first mention that we find of this sort of thing. And later on in the same chapter, he actually brings this up again. And when we mentioned it briefly, uh, I think in, in the message on Sunday morning concerning being a peculiar nation and a holy priest or a holy nation and a royal priesthood and so on. We'll get to that here in a moment. He mentions us as being a holy priesthood. So I thought that was reserved for the guys with the, with the fancy collars. They're, they're the ones that are called priests, right? No, not really. Not in the Christian tradition, maybe in the Catholic tradition, maybe in the Orthodox tradition, maybe in some other traditions, but in the pure biblical tradition of the word, every single living, breathing one of us is identified as a royal priesthood. Now, what's a priest? A priest is someone that goes to God on behalf of someone else, aren't they? That's what a priest did. You go back to the Old Testament when they had real priests in the more conventional sense. They had the priesthood of Aaron. They had a certain job that they performed. They offered up animal sacrifices. They burned incense and, and offered up these other sacrifices that were all according to the law of Moses. Those priests acted as priests, as acted as go-betweens between the children of Israel and the God that brought them out of slavery in Egypt. The God that redeemed them, called them by his own name, and then made them into a nation and set them up as a light to the Gentiles, okay? At least that was understood uh, what they were supposed to be. Well, they offered up sacrifices. They were intermediaries. They acted as go-betweens between God and man, or as go-betweens on behalf of man to God. So if he calls us a royal priesthood, does it not stand to reason that we would, we would have a similar function? Now, not as far as sacrificing animals or burning incense or any of that, because all of those things were a foreshadowing of things that Christ would fulfill in his own life and then fulfill in us. 
If we're called to be a royal priesthood, well, how do I want to put this? We kind of need to be qualified to be priests. And the most effective priests were priests that actually loved the people that they were representing to God. It wasn't just a clock punch and day job. Oh, well, it's X o'clock and my shift begins now because there were priests that worked all through the night also. It was something, the priesthood never stopped. You know what I mean? It was a 24-hour operation, seven days a week. They were always engaged in something that concerned the ministry of the Lord. But it wasn't just something that they were punching their clock to do their shift and they couldn't wait until it was done so they could go home and do whatever it is that they wanted to do. They loved the people that they were representing when they went before God. And so when Yehuta or Moisha or whoever it was, you know, brought their yak or their bullock or their sheep or whatever their animal sacrifice was because they owed a sacrifice to atone for something or they were they something they were bringing something as, as, a, as an offering of thanksgiving to the Lord or whatever, the priest that would receive that offering and then haul that poor animal and slaughter that thing, kill it and pour the blood out and then divide the carcass and, and, and lay it out on that altar to be burned before God. Well, he loved that man. It wasn't a case of, oh, good grief, here comes, here comes Moshe again. I can't believe this. I've sacrificed three animals for this guy in a month. When's he ever going to get his act straight? That thought might have come through the priest's mind, but he would still ideally, hopefully, have a love for that man and maybe even be praying for that man while he was going about his deed of sacrificing that animal to atone for whatever this man had done to bring the sacrifice for. Maybe he was rejoicing in his heart on behalf for, for the same thing that this man was thankful for, bringing that sacrifice to the Lord. The best priests are the ones that don't just love their job, they love the people that they are priests on behalf of. So well, how does that relate to us? Well, who are we priests on behalf? He calls us a holy priesthood here in verse four, verse five, excuse me, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. Well, who are we priests on behalf of? One another, the lost, you name it. We're priests on behalf of whoever we are going to God on behalf of in prayer, interceding for them. Those family members that drive us bonkers. Trust me, I've had some of them. I understand. Those family members that don't drive us bonkers, but we get along with, but for whatever reason, they may, not, they may they just don't know the Lord for themselves. Those co-workers that might drive us crazy or that don't drive us crazy. Our neighbors, we sure can. And it's a good thing to do. We want to be, say, well, if I'm a priest, I want to be a good priest. Because seriously, who wants to be a bad one, right? Nobody wants to be bad at anything that they do. They might recognize if they are, but then they'll want to try to change it. But so none of us aspires to be bad at what we're doing in the family of God, in the temple of the Lord. And so he says, ye also as lively stones are built up a spiritual house a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. Wherefore also, and we'll, we'll finish with this tonight in verse 6. Wherefore also it is contained in Scripture, Behold, I lay in Sion 
a chief cornerstone. That's speaking of Jesus again. Elect and precious. And he that believeth on him shall not be confounded. And what does it mean to be confounded? It means you're presented with a problem that you don't know the solution to or you're presented with a question that you don't know the answer to. It means to be stumped, to be confounded. We're not ever supposed to be in that kind of a, of a position. He that believeth on him shall not be confounded. Well, let's roll all of this up really quick. As we spoke of a few different things, but they're all interconnected. He says, wherefore, laying aside all malice, all guile, all hypocrisies, all envies, envies and all evil speakings, as newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word. Okay, that's the word of God, the Holy Bible, Genesis through Revelation, all 66 books. We stand on those. They're divinely inspired. They were given to us. They've been preserved in some cases miraculously down through thousands of years. Okay, that's no small thing at all especially for the majority of that period of time where, you know, the only thing that ever got documents get, got preserved, they had to be preserved by hand. They had to be rewritten and recopied and stored. And, and it, it just wasn't an easy thing to do all the way up until the time of the printing press. Okay. It was extremely hard work. It was laborious, but it was, it was all preserved for us. We as newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word that we may grow thereby. Well, if we continue to desire the milk of the word and we've got unlimited access to it, which praise to God in this modern age, we do. We have it on everything. We have it on paper. You have it in your Bibles, on a bookshelf. You have it on our, we have it on our phones, on our tablets. It's like you can get it anywhere and you can get it for free if you know where to look. It doesn't even cost you any money. And so if we have desire for the sincere milk of the word and we have unlimited access to the milk to that milk of the word we ought to be some pretty fat babies spiritually speaking shouldn't we because we've got all we want and you can gorge on the stuff there's no such thing as spiritual gluttony it's a good thing you can take in as much of it as your time will allow or as much as you carve out for yourself too. And then the result of that is, okay, because we're talking about all this stuff about being living stones, built up in a spiritual house, holy priesthood and all of that. You get enough of that sincere milk of the word in you and you'll never be confounded because you'll always have the answer, the solution to the problem, the answer to the question, at least if it's one that's revealed in the word, it'll be there. And you'll never be confounded. You'll never be stumped either by a situation that confronts you in life or by a question that somebody asks you that you wish you had the answer for but find that you don't. And you find yourself uh, 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 confounded and then ashamed. It's kind of a shame to be confounded by someone else's question when it's something that we ought to know the answer to. So we take all this into account. It paints a picture for us how we ought to be it's not all inclusive because there's still so much more to talk about much stuff we've covered in the previous chapter and more stuff to come in this chapter but it lays upon us a certain responsibility there in the second paragraph when he speaks of us being a holy priesthood it lays upon us a certain responsibility that we have to have the right kind of character if we're going to fulfill it if we're going to fulfill it well and so 
that ought to give all of us something to pray about. Really, every one of us, something to pray about. Father, am I a good priest? What do I need to be a better priest? The sincere milk of the word, fervent love towards one another, and cooperative stones within this spiritual house. Thank you for listening to Come to the Table, Bible studies from the New Testament Christian Church of Cheyenne. Included in these presentations are red-letter studies on the life and teachings of our Lord Jesus Christ, historical studies on the Old Testament, topical studies on biblical doctrines, and practical studies on Christian life. If you enjoyed this presentation, you can support our efforts by contributing at www.myntcc.org backslash Cheyenne WY giving.